Well, you've already sung a sermon several times this morning, and this is a good day to come and do that. Uh, it's a day worth putting a coat and tie on for, even if that's not something you normally do. Uh, if you are newer to Harvest, uh, everybody that just chuckled and laughed when I said that is not, and that's because we don't normally look like this. We're kind of a Northwest casual group, but on Easter Sunday, it's worth putting on a coat and tie. I've had the same experience Jordan apparently has had a couple times this morning. People come up and say, wow, you look really nice. <laughs> Don't look so surprised. How do I normally look? Never mind. Keep that to yourself. But thank you. Um, Easter Sunday, the events of Easter weekend are worth putting a suit and tie on for because you dress up for special occasions. And one can scarcely think of an occasion more special than the events that we commemorate and celebrate this weekend, <clears throat> the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which are important for lots and lots of reasons, many of which we have just been singing together. It's important uh, because it is our salvation. It is important because it gives us hope. It is important uh, for a variety of reasons, but above all, it is important uh, because it is the resolution. The events of Easter weekend are the resolution to one of the greatest mysteries of life and one of the greatest tensions in the Bible. It all culminated on this weekend. I said there's a tension in the Bible because, in essence, the Bible makes it very clear there are really only two ways to approach God when it comes right down to it. There's one of two ways, and our passage this morning that you heard read just a moment ago identifies them with the words faith and law. Those are essentially two different ways to approach God. Now, what that means is, is simply this. Uh, Law is, is when we seek to obey God's rules and God's commands. Uh, that's law. The, it's, it's a way of approaching God that says the way to get in God's good graces is to follow his rules. He's got a list somewhere, and that list is, is the law, and you've got to follow that to the best of your ability. And if you do it, or at least do it well enough, then you're good with God. So, so in other words, the way to approach God is to find out what his law is and then keep it. That's one way to approach God. And that's really how most of the religions of the world historically have operated. Um, there are certain expectations behaviorally and ethically, and if you do them, then that is you know, fulfilling God's law, and, and you will appease God or the gods or mollify them or placate them or however it works in that particular religion. Now, there is another way to approach God, although this one is far more common. Uh, the other way is described by the word faith. And faith is just a Bible word that means trust. That would really kind of be the modern English equivalent. Trust. It's trusting God to do something that he's already said he's going to do. He's going he's to bless you. He's going to save you. He's going to let you into heaven, whatever it is he's promised. And so this approach to God isn't really so much about what we do, this approach to God is about what God does. His actions are the key over here. And because God has promised to do some things to us and for us, our response is simply to wait for him to keep his promise. It's to, to trust him to do what he said he's going to do. Two different ways to approach God. Law, as the Bible calls it, and on the other hand, faith. Now interestingly, both are present in the Old Testament as the Bible story unfolds. And they exist side by side in the Bible 
kind of in an uncomfortable tension with one another because they kind of seem mutually exclusive, right? I mean, it's, it's either we have to obey God to earn his favor and his blessings or God is going to give us his favor and his blessings anyway. It kind of seems like it's one or the other, but it can't be both. And yet when you're reading the Old Testament, you find both repeatedly and it creates questions for us. You see this, for instance, in the way God's promises are presented. Throughout the Bible, God promises his people many wonderful things. Above all, he promises us salvation. I'll save you. I'll save you from your sins. I'll save you from death. He promises us a close relationship with him. What, what better than to be a people who our sin drove us far away from God? God says, I'm going to bring you back close to me. To be close to God the way he made us to be is one of the great promises of the Bible. He says, I'm going to save you, I'm going to bring you close to me, and I'm going to give you joy forever, the kind of joy that only comes from being close to God Almighty, the one for whom we were made and who himself is the source of life. So he says, I'll save you. I will bring you close to me. You will receive joy forever at being in my presence and you will receive the deep satisfaction within yourself, the peace within yourself of doing what you were made to do, to worship and serve and love and be loved by God forever. Salvation, relationship, joy, and abiding satisfaction. These are some of the most deep and intense promises of life and they're all over the Bible. Now, here's the key question. Are those promises that God makes conditional or unconditional? In the Bible, are they conditional or are they unconditional? If they're unconditional, then basically that means, hey, God has made these promises and he's going to keep them, period. He's going to save his people. He's going to give them a close relationship with him and great joy and abiding satisfaction. He's going to do all those things regardless of what his people do. This is just God in his goodness giving us something that we don't deserve. In which case, our response is that faith response. You see? Okay, then our job is just to, to wait for God to show up and keep his word, to do what he said he's going to do. Great. When do we go home? When are you taking me to heaven? Awesome. I just got to trust you to do what you said you're going to do. That's if his promises are unconditional. On the other hand, if his promises are conditional, that would mean God is saying, okay, you have these promises available to you. I, I will save you, and I, I will bring you into a relationship with me and give you great joy and abiding satisfaction if, that's the key word on the conditional side, if you keep up your end of the bargain, if you do a good enough job following the rules that I've laid out for you to follow. You follow those rules, you will get my blessings. You don't follow those rules, you don't get my blessings, you see? Now, if that's the case, then our response is this law response. Okay, well, then I got to find out what God's rules are, and I got to do the best I can do to follow them so that I can get his blessings. So if God's promises are unconditional, that's what was referred to earlier as a faith response. If they're conditional, it's a law response. So, which is it in the Bible? Well, as we've already suggested, strangely, the Old Testament says both. It says both, repeatedly. God announces his promises as both conditional on the obedience of his people and unconditional as an act of sheer grace. 
Just a couple of quick examples. Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28 go to great lengths to tell the ancient Israelites that they will get the rich blessings of God's promises if they obey his rules. And you've got a couple of whole chapters that are devoted to laying this out. If you obey this rule, then I'll bless you. If you obey this rule, then I'll bless you. If you obey this rule, then I'll bless you. If, 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 then, then, then. And on the other hand, he also says, and if you don't obey these rules, then you will be cursed. Now, that's the, a Bible word for basically saying punished, punished for your disobedience. Um, we often talk about um, having good things happen to us or being punished. The Bible simply uses the words blessing and curses. It's the same idea. He says you'll be cursed or punished if you fail to keep up your end of the bargain. So you get these two or three chapters in the Old Testament that just back to back full of if you do this, then you'll get blessings. If you don't, then you will be punished. Hard to imagine a clearer statement of conditional promises. On the other hand, we have passages like Isaiah chapter 54 and many others in the Old Testament in which God repeatedly says to his people, you know what? You have failed to keep up your end of the bargain that we talked about over there. You've blown it. You've blown it repeatedly. And you know what? I'm going to bring about the promises anyway. No matter how faithless you have been as my people, I will be faithful. I will do what I promise to do. And despite your disobedience, he acknowledges that they failed to keep up their end of the bargain, but he says, I'm going to bring about that blessed promised future anyway, where my people will be close to me and they will experience joy forever unconditional despite their disobedience i'm going to do it and these are not just too specific or, or kind of isolated or cherry-picked examples these kinds of statements are all over the old testament and you can see the tension there can't you well, well which is it god and, and, and why is it as you're reading the old testament if you start reading it through and you move on and you you keep coming across here it's conditional here it sounds like it's not here it sounds like it is here it sounds like it's not god why is there such a seeming contradiction why is this paradox this apparent contradiction so obvious in the pages of scripture in fact timothy keller says that this tension between god's promises being conditional or unconditional is the main narrative tension that drives the old testament story and I think he's right about that. In other words, if you're reading the Old Testament, God's purpose is that you would say, huh? I don't, I don't understand. How does this work? What's going on? And where does this leave me, God, in relation to you? Is there any hope for people that God will keep his promises in light of our persistent sin and consistent disobedience that's the burning question that the old testament puts squarely in front of us and you know what it doesn't really answer it for us now the bible does answer that question once we get to christ but but just before we get there i think it's worth pausing for a moment and thinking about this tension because all of us as people tend to lean naturally more toward one side in how we think about god or more toward the other side. What about you? Do you find it easier to believe in a God who demands right behavior and who punishes wrong behavior, who has standards that he actually expects people to follow? 
Or do you find it easier to believe in a God who loves everyone and will care for everyone and be gracious to everyone regardless of how bad a person they are? How do you find yourself more naturally relating to God? All of us kind of naturally probably lean a little bit more one way or the other. This was really brought home to me several years ago where for a time I, I had a, a side job teaching part-time at a local university. I taught a class uh, that was an introduction to the Christian faith. And only about half the students in any given class were actually Christians. So uh, I was teaching uh, adult students. They were going back to school for their degrees. And so my students were professional people from our community, people just like you and me. My youngest students might have been in their mid-20s. My oldest students were probably close to 60. And everywhere in between, people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, career people. And they were going back to school to finish a degree. And, and so I'd get people from all sorts of walks of life. It was kind of, it was a riot. It was a fun class to get people, men and women, people from all different careers and, 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 and backgrounds, people pursuing different degrees, people of totally different faith backgrounds, including no faith background at all. I had Muslims in my class. I had Mormons in my class. I had atheists in my class. And we would talk about Christianity in the modern world. During one of these classes, one particular lady, um, very bright, articulate lady, identified herself clearly as an atheist, absolutely did not believe in anything supernatural whatsoever, was convinced that was all kind of, you know, ancient sort of superstitious stuff, and in the modern world, we've left all that far behind. And she did a good job of engaging with the class and doing assignments, but she was clearly going to have none of it. At one point in the class, we, we got to this idea of the nature of God and his standards, and, and God as, as a judge, and she, she said, even in the midst of one of our class discussions, and she was articulate and appropriate about it, but she was very clear what her position is. She just says, I, she can't abide the thought of, of some almighty God up there who's just like judging everybody. I'm like, what a horrible thought. That, that, that every time you step out of line, there's this almighty God who's just waiting up there to put the screws down on you, just bring his thumb down on you and squash you. She says, that's a horrible thought. She says, that's what I hate about religion. And she wasn't being mean or angry when she said it. She was just being honest. It's like, I hate that religious people believe this. There's all the standards of right and wrong and everybody gets judged and it, it breeds kind of meanness in people. She could not abide the idea of a God over there who had conditions and standards. And so she was kind of leaning a little more this way, even though she didn't believe in God. She was way more uncomfortable with the idea of a judging God than a gracious and loving one. Now, part of the reason I remember her is not only her comments, but also because the very next time I taught the course, only a few months later, totally different group of students, I had another lady in the class who was from a background that I guess you could, religious background, you could best describe as none. Um, that's kind of the, the buzzword that the Pew Center, uh, when they do their religious surveys now, uses. Uh, spiritual nuns, that is people who, that's N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, <laughs> just to be clear. N-O-N-E, nuns. They have no religious affiliation. Now, this is not people who are atheists. These are people who identify themselves as very spiritual. They believe in something beyond us, uh, maybe a personal God, but they don't identify with any uh, established religion. So when you say, what is your religious preference? They would check none, hence they're called the nuns. But they're not necessarily atheists. This is where she was at. She was really confused. She didn't know what she believed spiritually, um, but she was spiritual. And at one point, actually, we got to the same point in that conversation in the course, and she raised her hand in class, and she started talking, and she started expressing clear discomfort 
with the idea of God and his standards and so on. And as she began to talk, I thought, oh, she's just like the gal in the last class that I had. She's going to tell me she has a problem with a God who judges. But have you ever had one of those experiences where somebody starts to talk and, and the first sentence or two out of their mouth, you're like, oh, I know what they're going to say. And then you keep, let them keep talking and suddenly they're saying something totally different. And then you're really glad you didn't cut them off and say, yeah, yeah, I get it, because you were completely wrong, you know? <laughs> this was one of those times for me, and thankfully I didn't interrupt her. I let her talk, and as she talked, I realized, oh my goodness, she's not going where I thought she was going at all. She's going the complete opposite direction. She said, she was clearly uncomfortable. Body language, she was, she was scowling, she was scrunching her face up, she was squirming, she was kind of agitated as she talked. She, she was feeling this strongly. She said, basically, I can't understand this Christian idea of a God who forgives sinful, guilty, evil people. That just, that just offended her to her core. Here's some bad person who does awful things, and God's just going to say, okay, never mind. Mulligan, second chance. Just because that person says like, I'm sorry? Really? I mean, is that what we teach our kids? They go out on the playground and they steal some kid's lunch and punch him in the eye and then, oh, just go say you're sorry. Sorry. Okay, now everything's fine. What? Wait a minute. No, you can't do that. There's got to be consequences. And as she talked, I realized she was royally offended, not at a God who had standards. Again, this was not a gal who was Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but she had no problem believing in a God who had standards. Good night. If there is a God, of course he should have standards in her mind. What bothered her was that there was a God who might violate his own standards. She really struggled with an idea of a God who would just unconditionally promise salvation to people who didn't deserve it. She says, that's the thing, I, the, probably the thing, biggest thing about Christianity that, that just repulses me. I can't buy it. One lady offended by God's justice. Another lady offended by God's mercy. Which camp would you naturally lean towards? I think it's worth pointing out that both of these ladies I think had a point. I really do, and, and, and I told him that. I, I don't think either one of them was completely off base or wrong in how they were thinking. Each one of these ladies had put their respective finger on an issue that I think is a real issue, and they were understanding it, and they were reacting to it. In their cases, they were reacting negatively. Because you see, whether God's promises are purely conditional or purely unconditional, either way, you and I have a big problem. We have a big problem. Think about this. If God's promises are conditional, to get my blessings, you've got to obey all my rules, then we're in trouble. Because if we're honest, there isn't a person alive on the planet, there isn't a person in this room who can keep all of God's rules perfectly all the time. How many rules are there? If you talk to the Old Testament, the traditional rabbinical understanding of the, the Jewish Old Testament, how many God's rules are there? There are over 600 commands in the Old Testament law. And if you're going to follow the law, you must follow those commands. All of them, 24, 7, 365, every year of your life. If you fail to keep one of those rules, then you have not kept the law. 
And who could possibly do that? No one. No one. That's why verse 10 of our passage in Galatians chapter 3 says that the law approach to God is a dead end. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Remember, that means punishment. If you're, in other words, what the Bible's saying is if you're going to obey your way to God, if that's your way to get in God's good graces, you're doomed. You're doomed. You may do pretty good for a while. You may even do a lot better than other people. Good night. You might do better than most people. But the problem with law is that God doesn't grade on a curve. His standards are his standards, and God is God, so his standard is perfection. And if you can't obey perfectly, you will be a violator of the law. You will break the law, you will fail. And the Bible's really upfront about this. If you want to obey your way into God's good graces, you are doomed. Because everyone um, will be cursed unless they do not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them, every single one. Now, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The Bible's saying that doesn't work. That doesn't work. But the law is not of faith. So there's this other alternative. You see, if God's promises are conditional, then we're in trouble. It's amazing, is it not, how easy it is to spot sin in other people? But we're all pretty farsighted, aren't we? The further away the sin is, the easier it is for me to see it clearly. I can see when you're being callous toward your loved ones. I can see when you're treating people um, like dirt because you're too full of yourself. We can spot hypocrisy a mile away, whether it's in a politician or a coworker or our husband or wife or our kids. We can spot sin a mile away in other people. But it gets amazingly difficult to see it clearly when it's up close and it's us, isn't it? We're very farsighted when it comes to sin. Oh, I know I was callous toward my wife. I mean, I, I was really short and abrupt with her, and I, I, I mean, I, I just blew her off, and I treated her in a way that she totally didn't deserve when I got home. But I've had such a hard day at work. You wouldn't believe I got reamed out by this customer who was totally in the wrong, and I just had to sit there and take it. If she just understood how bad a day I've had, then it's understandable why I treated her that way, right? We possess an amazing ability to justify and excuse our own sin, but God says, if you're going to keep the law, you're doomed, because he's not fooled. So if it's all conditional, we have a problem. Now, on the other hand, if God's promises are unconditional, we have a completely different kind of problem. And it might not seem like that at first, because it's like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) If God's promises are unconditional, then that solves the problem over there. It doesn't matter how much I fail to keep God's laws. I'm I'm still in for the promise. God's going to save me. He's going to draw me into a relationship with him. He's going to give me joy. He's going to give me peace. It's going to be good with me. What could possibly be bad with that? And at first, that's true. It seems like there is no problem if God's promises are purely unconditional. But think about it. If God's promises are only unconditional, he will just bless people regardless of how much they sin, then justice means nothing. Nothing. It doesn't matter how big a sinner you are. You're in. But you see, if that's true for you, then that's true for everybody else too. 
So it doesn't matter how big a sinner anybody else is. God's just going to love them and bless them and give them heaven for all eternity anyway. It doesn't matter. So go ahead, mistreat people, steal from people, demean people, abuse people. It doesn't matter because apparently God doesn't care. And if God doesn't care when I mistreat somebody else, then that means he doesn't care when they mistreat me. So what just happened to justice? You see, that's what this second student I referred to earlier had put her finger on, and I think she was right. The idea that, that, that when people do bad things, God just sweeps it under the rug and just turns a blind eye like it didn't happen, I mean, that makes a horrible, horrible person out of God. What do you say to somebody who's walking down a street and they see a violent crime about to be in progress, a, you know, a robbery or a beating or, heaven forbid, a rape? It's just about to start. And, and in that moment, they've got all kinds of things they could do. They could yell and scream to try to get the person to, you know, scare the person off before the crime takes place. They could pull out their phone and call 911. Um, if they're really ambitious, maybe they could go rush the guy and try to tackle him. I don't know. There's a lot of different things you could do. And any of them, we would say, good for you. But what if the person sees that and says, oh my gosh, that's terrible. I can't even abide thinking about that. I'm headed home. And they just walk away. And they let the crime happen. You couldn't even call 911? How callous are you? Well, if God's promises are unconditional, that's apparently where we're stuck. It's common for people in our nation and other modern Western societies like ours to believe in God but reject the idea of hell or of God punishing or judging sin. And at first, the idea of a loving God that doesn't judge seems wonderful. I get that. I understand that. But friends, I'd urge us to think a little bit more deeply about that because it's actually a terrifying picture. A God who doesn't judge evil is actually something of a monster because he just turns a blind eye when people are victimized. He sweeps evil under the rug and he ignores it. Our God's promise is conditional or unconditional. Well, friends, either way, we've got a problem. So what is the resolution to this tension? How does the Bible resolve it? It doesn't resolve it in the Old Testament. It doesn't resolve it until we get to Jesus. It doesn't resolve this tension until we get to the crucifixion and the resurrection, the events of that first Easter weekend. Read on in verse 13 of our passage, Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse, the punishment of the law, by becoming a curse for us. Verse 13 says that Jesus saves sinners from the curse, that is the just punishment that we deserve for our sins. He saves us from that eternal punishment by taking that punishment for us in our place. In another part of the Bible, Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 the Bible puts it this way. Blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Notice it doesn't say blessed is the person who has no sin because nobody can say that. 
Blessed is the person who keeps the law perfectly, because nobody can do that. Nor does it say, blessed, that is, remember, in the language of the Bible, that means the person who receives God's promises gets to be with him forever in heaven for eternity in perfect joy. Blessed is the person who does enough good things to kind of make up for the bad things they've done, to sort of balance the scales and outweigh it. It doesn't say that either. What it says is, blessed is the person whose sins are covered over, whose sins are not counted against him or her. That law road is a dead end, and Jesus' approach makes a whole new way to relate to him. Now, at this point, it sounds like then we're talking about this, this unconditional side over here, right? That, that, that God doesn't count our sins against us, so I guess he's just turning a blind eye and sweeping them under the carpet, right? Well, not quite, actually. That's not what's being said here. The Bible doesn't reject one way of approaching God and endorse the other way. It actually rejects them both, as Tim Keller says, by presenting a third way. The gospel of Jesus is a third and completely different way. It's not halfway between the two. It is a totally different way of approaching God. What the Bible actually said in verse 13 is that Jesus redeems us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. He redeems us, that is, saves us from the punishment we deserve by taking the punishment for us in our place, not by turning a blind eye but by offering himself as a substitute to be punished in our place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, the Bible says this very succinctly. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. There's our language again. God was not counting the sins of sinful people against them. That's how he's bringing us into relationship with him. But how did he do that? In Christ, specifically, verse 21, for our sake, God made him who to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see what the Bible's saying there? For our sake and our eternal good, God, the Father and the Son, agreed that the Son, Jesus Christ, would come to earth to be a man and that he would take our place. He had no sin. He lived a perfectly righteous life, the only human being to ever do so, but he took the punishment on the cross that sinners deserved. He took sin's punishment even though he had no sin to be punished for. He took our place and then he rose again to new and eternal life so that we might have his righteousness. We are brought close to God because we are considered as if we had kept the whole law because Jesus kept it for us. And we don't have to suffer the punishment of hell and eternal separation from God because Jesus suffered the punishment of death for us in our place. The God who judges mankind's sin justly became a man and took the judgment for mankind's sin himself. That's the miracle of Easter. That's the miracle of Easter. The God who extracts payment because he is just is also the God who provides payment because he is merciful. And thus the Bible can say in Romans chapter 3 that God is both just and the justifier of one who puts their faith in Jesus. God is just. He does not turn a blind eye to evil. He does not sweep anything under the carpet. Every evil act will be paid for. Every sin will be brought to account. You can be sure of that. You can trust God's justice because he does not turn a blind eye. No sin goes unpunished and no evil is ignored or swept under the rug as if it didn't happen. 
It is all paid for fully. But you can also trust God's mercy because he takes your hell himself. And he experiences the suffering and the death that is the consequence of sin for you in your place so that you and I don't have to. Friends, the answer to this great Old Testament tension is that not even that they're both wrong, that God's promise is conditional or unconditional. The answer is a third way. They're actually both right. The promises of God were conditional for Jesus. They are unconditional for those who put their faith in Jesus. Jesus obeyed every detail of the law perfectly in righteousness and then took our sins punishment for us. If we place our faith in Jesus, we get the blessing of God's promises because he has earned them for us in our place. That's the miracle of Easter. It's a conditional covenant for Jesus. It is an unconditional one for us. I'd like to close the 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 which says that all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Will God save me like he promised despite my sin? Yes, in Jesus. Will God draw me into a close relationship with him as a loving father despite my sin? Yes, in Jesus. Will God allow me to experience the eternal joy forever that only comes from being in his presence? Yes, in Jesus. Will God allow me to experience the deep and abiding satisfaction of knowing that I am doing what I was made for Yes, in Jesus. All of God's promises are yes, in Jesus. Without the death and resurrection of Christ, we're doomed. Because he died in our place and rose again to new life, you and I have hope. Friends, as we draw this part of our service to a close, I'd like to ask you to consider, how does God want you to respond to his Easter message this morning? For the remainder of our service, there will be some time of music and of singing as we respond to God and his word. It's also a time for reflection. There are cards available. I'd encourage you to grab them all now. Grab them now. It says on it, um, uh, I forget the exact word, something like, for me to take a step closer to Jesus would mean. And I want you to consider what it would mean to respond and take a step closer to Jesus. And don't leave today without asking God in these next few minutes, how do you want me to respond to you? And then write that down. You're gonna keep that yourself. You're not gonna turn it into us. But take the step of writing it down over the next few minutes while the music is playing. Maybe you've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never repented of your sins and said, God, you are my God. I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God and you are the only way for me to be saved. I wanna put everything on you. Maybe your response to that would be to say, I'm going to repent and give my sins to Jesus for the first time. Or maybe you'd say, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I, I understand there are times that I lean too heavy on trying to follow God's rules and not enough on the work of Jesus. Or maybe there's other times that I lean so much on the work of Jesus, I don't care how my life lives. 
And I know there's an area in my life I need to submit to the gospel today. Whatever that is, would you take the next few moments and write that down? The worship team's gonna start playing some music and give us some time to reflect, and then we're gonna sing, and let's respond to the gospel message because it is the power to change your life, but only for those who put their trust in Jesus. He's beckoning you home today. Come to him. Father, thank you for resolving the greatest tension in history, one that we could never resolve ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to die and to rise again from the dead in our place so that we might have life. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would move in this place now. Over the next few minutes, would you bring your word to the minds of attentive hearts? Would you draw us to a point of response? Would you convict us where there is sin? Would you urge us and make it clear to every man and woman and young person in this room how we need to respond more fully in faith to you and let you be our Savior? Spirit, do that work now. Change hearts and draw people to yourself as we lift you up and give us a heart to respond that we might be changed forever. In Christ's name we ask this, amen.